Okay, it is wonderful to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction, for the invitation, and for the opportunity to be back at Bridge. I love coming to the Bridge. I love being part of the Bridge. I love your journey, and I love your Christmas tree. Come on. Now, now it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. For me, it's a wee bit early. I'm, I'm one of those December Christmas people, right? So I, I like getting properly excited towards Christmas. So I'm always nervous about a slightly early overcook, but it is an absolutely gorgeous uh, Christmas tree. And uh, what a great event you had yesterday. So thank you. And uh, we're continuing a series uh, on Sunday mornings based around the mission statement of the church. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything's possible. Fantastic stuff. And it's my joy this morning, beautifully uh, introduced earlier on, that nobody's perfect. That's probably just about the right uh, subject for me. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow a couple of readings, I'm going to take two beautiful readings from the Gospel of Luke. So both the words of Jesus. We're going to read from Luke chapter 15. And then we're going to jump over and read a little bit from Luke chapter 18. So if you want to follow that with me and you've got a Bible to hand, why don't you uh, do that? If you're a guest and you don't have a Bible, this won't take very long, but it's really important that we read the Bible and that you hear the words of Jesus when it comes to thinking about nobody's perfect. All right, so turn to the person next to you and say, nobody's perfect, (laughs) including you. All right then, here we go. All right. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Verse 11, you'll know these stories. Many of you will know these stories pretty well. Even if you're not uh, used to church, you've probably heard a version of this story somewhere. It's an amazing, amazing story. And it says this, Jesus continued. Now, let me just say before we read the story, Jesus has already told two beautiful stories, two parables, the story or the parable of the lost sheep. And then he tells the story, or the parable of the lost coin. And the reason he tells that story is given to us right at the beginning of Luke 15. And it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, that's the religious community, and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then in verse 3 says, Then Jesus told them this parable. So the three parables, lost sheep, lost coin. And now this parable we're going to read are all in response to this accusation that Jesus welcomes sinners and tax collectors. So here we go. Jesus continued, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And the implication is this boy's Jewish, so that's that's a bad moment for him. He longed to fill the stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went back to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now that would have been a great end to the story. But Jesus keeps going. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Oh, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost (laughs) and is found. If you're reading a Bible like mine that has pages in it, just flip over a couple of pages to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read just another brilliant, uncomfortably brilliant little story of Jesus. Just to add to the discomfort we already have after reading that story. So Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And it says this. This is Jesus talking again. He's telling another story. And it says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Jesus concludes, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Heavy stuff, right? Now, if you've been on the planet more than five minutes, you know intuitively, and you know experientially, that nobody's perfect. All right? If that's a shock to you, I want to know where you've been living. All right? So we know that. Everybody in this room looks at that statement that nobody's perfect and no one in this room will push back on that because we know that is true. So we're accepting that as an absolute fact. 
But when I think about nobody's perfect, here's the way I read this, and hopefully I'm reading it properly in a way that's in line with the the heart of the bridge. When I read nobody's perfect, I'm not really thinking about the imperfection of the people around me. I'm thinking about how I respond to that imperfection. If nobody's perfect is a fact, and that's never going to change until like Jesus comes back or until the end of the world, right? So if nobody's perfect is a fact, then I can't change that. Every single person coming through the doors of the bridge is imperfect. Everybody sitting in this beautiful room is imperfect. All those gorgeous children that went to the children's event are imperfect. That is a fact. So I can't change that fact. But what I can't think about is how I respond to you, to your imperfection, to the fact that you're not like me. (laughs) And everyone said, oh man, I'm not like him. That's good. (laughs) Right? The fact that we're different, the fact that we're all on different stages of the journey. Here's what I've discovered. One of the, one of the little temptations is that I, as a follower of Jesus, can be so preoccupied with the righteousness or lack of righteousness of the people around me that I actually take for granted or forget that actually there's a journey going on in me. I can become so preoccupied with what's around me that I can forget that Jesus isn't primarily preoccupied with the imperfection of the people coming in. He's more preoccupied with the response of the people already in. Are you with me? All right. That imperfection of the people around him. If we're going to have a statement, everybody's welcome. And we've got to be ready for all sorts of shapes and sizes and good and bad and ugly that's going to come into our building and into our community. So, so the fact that we're saying everybody's welcome means we're throwing our arms open to the imperfection. So the issue is not about the righteousness or lack of righteousness of the people coming through the doors. The issue is what is my response to the people coming through the door. Does that make sense? That actually our focus is not so much on the behavior of the people that we are welcoming. Our focus is on the response of the community of faith to the people that we are welcoming. Amen? And that's a big idea. Now let me just get the awkward moment out of the way right at the beginning to say this, that actually nobody's perfect is not an excuse to behave like a numpty. Come on now. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right. (laughs) Right. So nobody's perfect doesn't give me the excuse to behave whatever way I want here and go, well, nobody's perfect. All right. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for me to behave badly and then expect you to put up with it. You're very quiet. So, so let's think about your family. I, you know, Don and I have raised three children. Uh, we, we know our, our three children were imperfect, but, but that was never allowed as an excuse when it came to living in the community of the family. There are certain principles, certain ideas, certain values that we want our children to follow. So just saying I'm not perfect is not the excuse for bad behavior. 
So as a follower of Jesus, if you are becoming a follower of Jesus, if you've become a follower of Jesus, we're now part of a community that wants to disciple us towards Jesus, that wants to disciple us in a way that actually we start to reflect Jesus in our words, in our behavior, in our conduct, and in everything that's going on. And that means there's going to be some moments when me and you will be a bit more on the numpty side than we would like to be, but actually being part of a community helps us to move beyond numptyville and move into freedom, right? Come on now. Is that right? And I thank God for the people around me who've helped me in my imperfection by not giving in to my imperfection. Well, it's just the way I am. Yes, I understand that. But also, there's a challenge to grow towards something. So when we say nobody's perfect, this is not an excuse for us to behave whatever way we want. As followers of Jesus, we're called to behave a certain way. We're called to think a certain way. We're called to think about each other in a certain way. And that's a journey we are all making together. And we actually all need each other to make that journey together. And that's a good thing, right? So when we all understand none of us are perfect, that's helping us in our numptiness, right? But never making it an excuse, Come on, are you there? Yeah. All right. But actually, the greater challenge to us is not just our own journey in terms of growing towards Jesus, but how we're responding to other people in their journey. And that's where our two beautiful little parables really, really help us. These are really awkward parables. They're really quite painful. And they really uh, do jab at us a little bit, especially uh, to those that are already sort of in the club, in the family. We've been around a little bit. Uh, actually, these, these parables really remind us we've got to watch ourselves as we go forward. The first parable we read is often referred to as the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. Or, or even uh, just the lost son. So if you've got a Bible like mine, my Bible has headings. And, in, and, and when we come to that third parable, it's got a heading, the parable or the story of the lost son. But actually, that's wrong. It's not the parable of the prodigal son. It's not the parable of the lost son. Look how Jesus begins the parable. Jesus starts the third parable by saying, there was a father, a man, who had how many sons? How many? Come on, he had two sons. The parable that Jesus is about to tell is about two sons, not about one son. Now, we love the story of the prodigal son, and why not? What an amazing story. He goes off, he blows it all, he comes back, and he's received with loving kindness by his father. And that is a whole amazing story in itself. But because we're so enamored by this beautiful story of this returning son, we forget the second son. And actually, the parable is pointed as much towards the second son as the first son. And remember, when Jesus starts this parable, he begins, Luke 15 tells us, the sinners are gathered around him and the tax collectors. And then it says the Pharisees and the religious community are sort of looking on. So you've got Jesus at the center, a little circle around him, and and then the religious people on the fringe. And the religious people, the people who believe they know what God is and God wants and God does and believe they're honoring God are looking in at Jesus with these sinners and criticizing him. 
So when Jesus tells the story of the two sons, he's telling the story of the sons who are labeled sinners, and he's telling the story of the son who's the religious. He's speaking to both groups of people. He's speaking to the sinners sitting around his feet, and he's speaking to the religious who are criticizing him for letting sinners speak to, uh, sit at his feet. And so when Jesus tells this story, he tells the parable of two sons, because both of them are lost. The younger son is lost in his unrighteousness. Everybody gets that. You don't, you don't need to be around the Bible any length of time to understand what he did was wrong. We all get that. We can see the wrongness of the younger son, the unrighteousness. But the older brother, the older son was lost in his self-righteousness. How's that possible? How's it possible to be lost in self-righteousness? And both are lost. Now that the son who's hugging pigs, that looks obviously lost. The son who never leaves home and obeys his father looks like he's in, but actually his attitude is showing he's lost. He never left but he's lost. Why? Because he's lost in his self-righteousness. You see, the older son forgot that, that you become a son not because of hard work, but because of grace. You don't become a son by your own will. You become a son because of the will of the Father. That it's, it's not grit that makes me a son. It's grace. It's not hard work that makes me a son. It's goodness and loving kindness and, and mercy that makes me a son. That actually I am a son not because of my grit but because of his grace. But because the brother, younger brother went away and the older brother stayed at home, the older brother actually gets lost in his own sense of self-achievement and self-righteousness. And therefore, when thinking about his younger brother and thinking about the lost son, he doesn't simply think about a returning brother, but he compares him to his own self-righteous self. And that's where it becomes an extremely difficult moment and we must never forget and some of us have been in this family the family of Jesus and some of us have been in the bridge family for a million years or so for a very very long time and here's the problem when you've been in the family for a while you forget that you're a son because of grace not grit you're not here because you worked hard. You're not here because you're good. You're not here because you're better. You're here because in his mercy and in his grace, he made you a son. He made you a daughter. Now, some of you have been sons and daughters a very long time. Some of you have just become sons and daughters of the living God. So everything is just amazingly new and fantastic. But if you're anything like me, I've been around this thing for a very, very long time. And here's one of the temptations I've discovered. I can be lost in my own self-righteousness. I forget that I am a son by grace and because I've been doing this a while and I know how to do it and I know which buttons to press and I know how to make all of this work, when I then meet people who, who maybe are, are not like me, the danger is I can look down on them 
on their imperfection that I see and judge them. Now, I'm not saying you've ever done that. I'm saying that's what the son is doing. And if a son can be so lost in his own self-righteousness that he can't even call his brother his brother, but calls him the son of his father, if that could happen to him, a good boy, who never went away, could that happen to me? Could that happen to you? And I think it's a temptation that we've got to constantly resist. If everybody's welcome, then perfection's flooding through the door. So the issue is not imperfection. The issue is my response to the imperfection. Come on, are you with me? And one of the ways it's going to help you respond to the imperfection coming through the door is to remember that you are a son and a daughter by grace and you are broken goods in recovery, and that actually he is working on you in the same way that he's working on them. It just looks a bit different, but he's, he's still at work on us. Here's how John puts it in his beautiful gospel. He says, yet to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will but born of God. The only reason I can stand on this front row and lift my hands in worship and even have the incredible privilege to open this Bible is because I was born of the will of God. It's all by his grace. When I remember that, I can manage your imperfections a bit better. When I forget that, I tend to become a bit self-righteous. A bit up myself. Clearly I'm the only one in the room. But that's the truth. That's the truth. And we can lose our way very, very quickly. And if a good person like a Pharisee. Now sometimes we give the Pharisees a hard time. Because they seem to be the bodies in the story. But these Pharisees were serious people. These Pharisees loved the Bible. They loved God. They believed they were serving God. The Pharisees in question could recite the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy off by heart. You're a hard crowd to impress. Okay, come on now. These aren't, these aren't wishy-washy like religious. These are serious people. These people seriously believe they love God. Now, if a man who believes he loves God to that extent, who so loves the Bible that he's memorized the first five books of the Bible off by heart, if a man like that can get lost, so can we. And I think that's the challenge. Nobody's perfect. We got it. We know that. Look in the mirror. We know that. The issue is how are we going to manage the nobody's perfect around us? I think that is the challenge. And Jesus in his second little parable takes it on. It's explicit in the second parable. If in the first parable of the two sons, the self-righteousness of the older brother is implied, in the second parable, Jesus does not miss and hit the wall, right? He goes, for those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, he told this story. I mean, there's no, there's no mistaking what Jesus is doing there. And when I read those two stories, the stories of the lost son and the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, 
something within me wants to make sure I never get on the wrong side of this story. I never want to be the older brother. I never want to be that Pharisee. But here's the truth. I'm going to be really vulnerable with you. There's a Pharisee in us all. He's lurking for every opportunity to rise up and show how amazing you are when you compare yourself to pig-hugging tax collectors. Come on, are you still with me? I'm feeling a bit lonely up here. I know this is a tough gig. You probably expected a different sort of sermon. But I want to challenge you with this. Now, what happens, what happens when we, like the older brother, forget? What happens when we forget we're sons and daughters by grace and not by grit? What happens? Three very, very simple things. You'll know these, but let me throw them at you. They're in the story. Let me, let me bring them to you. The first thing that happens is we become superior. There's a superiority of self starts to emerge when we forget that we are sons and daughters by grace and not, for, uh, 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 and not by grit, all right? And I don't know if you noticed the language of the older son. When the older son comes back and hears the party and the servant explains and then the dad comes out. Look at the language of the son. Now remember in the parable of the lost sons and in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, all the dialogue, Jesus is making that up. Okay, you with me? So, so this may have happened literally, but Jesus is putting words into the mouth of the younger son, words into the mouth of the older son, and words into the father. So all the dialogue Jesus is creating, he's making this up. And look at the words that Jesus puts into the mouth of the older son when confronted by the father. He says, but when this son of yours... Easy to miss that, hidden in plain sight in the text. Easy to move on and just miss what you've heard. He doesn't say, when my brother came back. He says, this son of yours. Wow. And he goes on to say a couple of interesting things. Has squandered your wealth in prostitutes. Now the text doesn't actually say that. Jesus doesn't say that the, the boy blew his wealth on prostitutes. It just says while living. Well, while living could be any. One, one man's while living is not another man's while living. He could have like just knocked himself out fishing or something all day. Because that was wild to him. We assume that while living means wine, women and song sort of thing. And certainly that's the assumption of the older brother very dangerous thing to look at someone and make assumptions what Jesus calls why living he says prostitutes may or may not have been the case but the older brother is not only now seeing himself as superior but he's literally saying what the younger brother did even though he doesn't know what he did. He hasn't met him yet. They haven't talked about what he did. He's assuming. And assumption about others comes from superiority of self. Come on, you there? 
And it's interesting, he says to the dad, there's a lovely play on the word here. It's not obvious in the English text, but it's beautiful in the language of Dr. Luke. He, he, he uses this language, he says, he has squandered your property with prostitutes and come home and you've killed the fattened cow for him. The word squandered there means to literally eat intensely. It means to be a glutton, right? It's like he's taken his dad's money and he's just consumed it like ravenously he's just stuffed his face while he's been away and there's lovely idea that even though he stuffed his face on sin look what the father's doing the father has prepared a meal for him to eat there's a gorgeous little act of grace there that even the older brother recognizes this son of yours and then Jesus drops the hammer even more and and the The older brother then says to the dad, listen to these words. Now, these are words Jesus has put in his mouth. He says this, all these years I have been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Now, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Look at this carefully. This is not the language of a son. If if one of my children, if my daughter came to me and said, Dad, I've slaved for you for years, I would be deeply upset. Because daughters and sons shouldn't slave. Come on now. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. This is not the language of a son. This is the language of a slave. This is not the language of love and freedom. This is the language of duty and obligation. This is a young man who has compared himself to his younger brother who's gone off and blown it. And because he stayed at home and continued to serve the father, but he sees obedience to the father, not in terms of love and freedom, but in terms of duty and obligation. This is the language from the older brother of merit, of works. Here's what the older brother is saying. I'm better than him. Because I've been good. I'm better than him because I stayed at home. I'm better than him because I worked hard. I'm better than him because I've earned it. And all these years you didn't even give me a goat to eat with my friends. This is the language of self and earning. This is the language of superiority. And did you notice the same language in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Here's the language of the tax collector. Remember Jesus? Jesus is putting these words in. This may have literally happened, but Jesus is is making this up at some level. And the Pharisee prays this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he concludes, and I'm not like this tax collector. Now there's a lovely play on the word again. When the Pharisee prays, It's like he prays to himself. And I thank you that I'm not like him. Now, why does he make that distinction? He goes on to say this, because I fast twice a week and I tithe. I give a tenth of everything I own. Look at at this. He's looking at the tax collector and he's comparing the tax collector to his own merit. Look what I have done. Look what I have achieved. I'm better because I work harder. I'm better because I've earned it. I'm better because I am good. And he is not. And when we forget grace, 
We're prone to that. Now, I'm not saying you are, and I mean that sincerely. Please don't be offended if I'm putting you somewhere and you, John, I've never been like that, but I have. So let me be really honest with you. I have. I've looked down my self-righteous nose at people. I have. As a pastor, I've done it. As a follower of Jesus, I've done it. As a father, I've done it. As a husband, I've done it. And in every single case where I've got up myself and become self-righteous, it's because I have forgotten his grace. That's why I love to break bread regularly. That's why I love to have communion regularly. Because every time I take that bread and take that cup, I am reminded everything I am, everything I have, everything I own, everything I've ever become is all because of that bread and that cup. It's not because of anything I've done. It's not because I fast twice a week and give my tenth to the poor. It's not, it's not because I'm a good person. It's because he's a gracious God. You with me? And I, I remember uh, growing up in the church that I grew up in, wonderful, wonderful church full of wonderful people. But we had a, we had a, a leader who was part of our church and, and for him, divorce was the unforgivable sin. It was amazing. We, we had men coming into our church who had done terrible things in the troubles. I mean, like the one man who, who had killed someone and done his time, come in, become a Christian and yet, and yet that man was, was, was able to serve communion. That man was able to get involved. That man was able to get involved in ministry, even though in his past life he had killed someone. Because that's the gospel. The gospel can set people free. And yet, for this particular leader, my goodness, divorce seemed to be a bit of a thing. And he, and he was so angry and, and, and self-righteous about this whole issue to the extent that it became a terrible, terrible block to people being able to serve God. And, and as far as, as long as he was an elder, a divorcee would never, would never serve communion. As far as, as long as he was an elder, a divorcee could never be a deacon or an elder or serve in the church. It became the unforgivable sin. And when you got close to him, he was a wonderful man. He was a good man. He loved Jesus. So I'm not painting as a bad man. When you got close to him, here was the issue. He took such pride in his marriage. Come on. The issue wasn't divorce, ladies and gentlemen. The issue was pride. Are you with me? Now, is it good to have a good marriage? Of course it is. Should you celebrate a good marriage? Absolutely. But when that becomes the self-righteous basis on which you, you judge those who don't have what you have. Pharisee alert. Older brother alert. Are you with me? It creeps up on you. No one in this room would set out to do that. No one in this room would want to be that nasty. And yet, I've been around the church a million years, a church that I love, a church that I would die for, and I've heard these sorts of attitudes over and over and over again. And those attitudes cannot be supported by the biblical text. Those attitudes are coming out of us. They're coming out of our own sense of merit and achievement and self-righteousness. Now, forgive me, that doesn't apply to you, but it applies to me. And I know there's a Pharisee in me and I've got to fight him every day. Are you with me? Here's the second idea really quickly. Superiority of self leads to, secondly, separation from others. Look at this, verse 28. 
when the older brother comes home, it says this, the older son became angry and refused to go in. Now here's, here's, the, strange, here's the strange thing. The younger son has shamed his dad in Middle Eastern culture for a Jewish boy to do what he did and go to a Gentile world with his father's inheritance has shamed the home. In fact, there was a whole potential process that the father could go through to further shame the younger son if he ever returned, which he doesn't, he doesn't accept. The father doesn't shame the son when he returns, even though the culture of the day said he could do it. So the younger son has shamed the father by doing what he's done. But when the older son refuses to go into the feast and makes his father leave the feast to go and speak to him, it's like he is shaming the father. It's like he's slapping the father on the face. Because his father now has to come out and beg his son to come in. No Middle Eastern father No Middle Eastern father wants to lose face by having to beg his son. Are you with me? He became angry and refused to go in. And actually, this is an amazing moment where he's saying, here's what he's saying. Not only am I better than my brother, not only am I better than this son of yours, but I am not going to associate with him. I'm not even going to have dinner with him. You can take your fattened calf and stuff it where the sun doesn't shine. I'm not coming in. And that was exactly the same attitude as the religious community. They criticized Jesus, not for his theology. In fact, most of the time, the Pharisees sort of liked the theology of Jesus. They criticized Jesus for his behavior. He was sitting with the wrong people. He was having dinner with the wrong people. He was rubbing shoulders with the riffraff, with the scum, with the pig huggers. And a good rabbi, a good religious man, a man who knows Torah, would never do that. And yet Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Jesus is saying, actually, if you do know Torah, if you do know the heart of God, this is exactly what you should be doing. You should be bringing God to the people. And so so the Pharisees, the religious community were so determined to protect God that they wouldn't even have dinner with the people of the land in case they got contaminated. They would even put a a gauze over their wine glass so that when they poured the wine, the gnats were caught in the gauze so that it didn't contaminate the cup. What? Serious. And the tragedy is they believed they were doing the right thing. And actually, when he refused to go in, he was separating himself. The very thing the father didn't want. Did you notice that in our little parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it says that the Pharisee stood by himself. It's all deliberate. The language is amazing. He stands by himself and prays, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him. But the tragedy is that he prayed to himself while standing to himself because God wanted him to be like this man. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. The implication here is in standing apart because we're superior. And actually, 
Our world needs a church that is secure enough in its grace and secure enough in its righteousness of Jesus that we can sit with people we normally wouldn't be comfortable to sit with because Jesus sat with us. Amen? He came to us. I remember speaking at a conference a little while ago and it was quite a large conference and and I turned up and, and uh, I, I walked into the big foyer of the conference hall where there was hundreds of people milling around, checking in. I was in my jeans, pair of track shoes, t-shirt, rugsack. I was on my own and I walked in. These, this was the day before you had photographs of everybody. So I was just, just one of the blokes in the foyer uh, trying to get checked in. And there was a young man with a badge, looked very important, looked like he knew what he was doing. And I approached the young man with a badge and I said to the young man with a badge, any chance you could help me? He said, what, what's, what's wrong? I said, I just need to get checked in. He said to me, stand in the queue over there. So the queue was huge, and I, and I said, is there, is there any chance I could get checked in quickly? He said, queue, over there. That was fine. So I, I, he was doing what he was told to do. I was just a bloke, good over there, standing in the queue. Took me 45 minutes or so to get checked in. Then when I got to the front of the queue, he said, oh, oh, Dr. John, what, what are you doing standing in the queue? Oh, well, that guy. No, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm in the queue. 45 minutes, I eventually get checked in. That night, I preached. And we had a wonderful, wonderful time. And the young man with the badge came to me afterwards. And here's what he said. He said, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you in the foyer. Here's what he said. If I had have known who you were. And I said to him, that's the problem right there. (laughs) If I had have known who you were. You see... See, the, 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 the problem is when we stand in superiority and separation, we think we know who people are. And we never give ourselves the chance to find out who they really are. And because of that, then, we're in danger of judging them from a distance and making them be someone they're not. Is that okay? I know this is heavy. feels a bit heavy this morning, doesn't it? All right, here's the last idea and I'm done. The band, you want to come? Great. The guys will get ready. That's always a good sign when the band comes. You can all breathe easily now. When, when we forget that it's grace, not grit, when we're in, in, the, in the church so long that we forget our own journey, one of the dangers is we become superior. The second danger as a result of that is we end up separating ourselves from the very people we need to learn to sit with. And then thirdly, we end up tragically in strife with the Father. This is the worst part of this moment. Look at what it says, verse 31 of our story of the two sons. Here's the Father speaking, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Now here's, here's the terrible tragedy. The older brother has a beef with the younger brother. But the tragedy is he's now at odds, not with the younger brother. But with his father. So what was about me being better than him is now me being at odds with my father. 
I'm now on the wrong side of this conversation. I'm now defending my own self-righteousness to my dad because I don't want to have dinner with him. And if the younger son shamed his father by saying, I wish you were dead, when he said, can I have my inheritance? That's sort of what he's saying to his dad. I wish you were dead. The older son is now saying to his father, you're stupid. You're foolish. How on earth could you accept someone like that back here? He has shamed you. He has shamed us. He has shamed our family. He has blown your wealth on prostitutes. And look at him. He's back in the room enjoying everything that he threw away. How can you do that? So now, now the son is at odds with the dad. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Can you see where that's going? The Pharisee prays by himself. Jesus goes on to say, the one that went home justified wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. And why? Because the Pharisee stood by himself, stood away from the man, but tragically stood away from God. God hasn't listened to him. God's put his fingers in his ears and isn't listening to that prayer because this prayer is full of self-righteousness and merit and actually the very thing that this man is praying God is not listening to but this prayer over here God be merciful to me a sinner the Lord hears that prayer and he goes home justified and here's how Jesus lands the parable when we exalt ourselves God opposes that he hates that he hates that attitude inside us when we humble ourselves he will exalt us is this easy no it is not I find this deeply deeply difficult I find this deeply challenging because at one level I believe all of those things and I don't need to be convinced of any of them everybody's welcome no brainer nobody's perfect of course anything's possible that's the gospel we believe in and we've been singing about today the problem I have with all of those things, it's not that they're not true, it's that they demand change of me. I cannot believe that and stay the same. I can't believe that and not get into the party. I can't believe that and separate myself from people I wouldn't normally rub shoulders with. I can't believe that and hold the Father at arm's length and say, God, I don't know how you can love those people because they're not like me. Now, please forgive me if in any way I have offended you this morning because that's not my intention. If I've made you uncomfortable, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I want you to be uncomfortable. You should be uncomfortable because if we're really going to get to grips with these mission statements, this is discomfort personified. These are massive ideas. Ideas that will challenge everything about ourselves. Ideas that will challenge our belief about the Lord, our belief about each other, our behavior. Everything gets challenged. And for those of us who've been in the family for a while, we've really, really, really got to watch those challenges because they can creep up on us very easily and just bite us when we're not expecting and something comes out of us
been moments when things have come out of me and have gone, where did that come from? Oh, I wish you could blame the devil. I wish you could blame you. It was me. And when we remember, you're a son because of grace. You're a daughter because of grace. It's nothing you've earned. It's nothing you've done. And even if you've been in the club a million years, there's no extra brownie points on top of grace. Grace is grace. You're a son because of the will of the Father. And when we forget that, then it's our brownie points that become the basis on which we see ourselves and we see others. When that happens, we're all in danger. And so Jesus calls us to the table. He says, come and eat with me. You're all welcome. Come and eat with me, younger son, pig-smelling son. Come on. Come and eat with me, Pharisee. Come and eat with me. Because when we all sit at the same table and we realize we're here at this table because of an invocation of grace, the food will taste different. The people will look different. And you will be different. So nobody's perfect, absolutely. Lord, help me to never forget that in me, but help me always to be open in responding to your grace by the way I treat others. Amen? Will you stand with me? Let me pray for you. We're going to sing. Service is drawing to an end. Well done for making it to the end. Nobody walked out. That was good. Lord Jesus, we stand here today clothed in your righteousness. There is nothing we have done. There is nothing we are doing. There is nothing we can do can add to the righteousness that we have in Christ. We are sons because of grace. We are daughters because of grace. We get to be in this family because of grace. We get to worship because of grace. We get to learn because of grace. We get to grow because of grace. Everything we are, everything we have, every good and perfect gift has come to us from above by grace. Lord, help us never to forget that. Help us to always remember when we're dealing with the imperfections of others that we ourselves are broken and imperfect. Help us, Lord, never forget that we're at the table because of your generosity and no other reason. And help us, Lord, never to become like the older brother, refusing to go in, refusing to eat, refusing to give ourselves to others. Help us never to become like that Pharisee, that good man who stood in the temple at the hour of worship and yet prayed to himself. Help us never to fall into those traps, O oh Lord, that the bridge will be a community where everyone is genuinely welcome with all our flaws, with all our brokenness, that the bridge will be a community that understands nobody is perfect and the bridge will be a community where anything is possible because grace reigns in this place. May your loving kindness fill our hearts. May your goodness and mercy hunt us down all the days of our lives. And may we, having received your grace, 
be generous contributors of your grace to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.